What I'm saying is, even if people didn't grow up in a full-on, hardcore, fundamentalist Baptist church, there's just enough of that in the water. There's just enough of that in the cultural milieu of America that people kind of have picked up the idea that God is violent, angry, and retributive. And if you're going to be saved, what you need to be saved from is from that God, and that's where Jesus steps in. And so you end up with, without it being said just so, because it's theologically untenable to keep pressing this, but the general idea is that Jesus saves us from God. Jesus saves us from his father who has obvious anger issues, which, you know, that, that, rep, that describes a lot of evangelistic preaching in America. And, you know, p- people, depending on who they are, may say, okay, yes, I'm going, to, I'm going to receive Jesus as my Lord and Savior so that uh, I can get in good with his dad. Um, you know, that, that, that may be the doorway into Christian faith for people, but it can later on be the doorway out of Christian faith. So if you're going to if you're going to bring people into Christian faith by terrorizing them, evangelism by terrorism, when they're 12 years old or 15 years old or 44 years old, don't be surprised if some of them, when they get a little older, also for the very same reason, leave the faith. Welcome to the Deconstructionist Podcast, everybody. We're your hosts. I'm Adam Narlock. <laughs> and I'm John Williamson. What's going, what's going on today, man? Well, you know what? Last week was probably a little, uh, a little much for it, some people. It was a little left field. A little left field and a little scary, probably. And um, Still not sure where I stand. On, me neither. On, but that's the point. Exactly. And, was, and at the very least, like I told one of our listeners, I'm like, if you can't, if you're, if you're not quite sure what you feel about, about this particular episode or this topic in general, it's okay. You're in good company. Let's just chalk it up to, it was a fun Halloween episode. Absolutely. And, and just move on to next week. And, you know, and then we'll move on to this episode. But yeah. like, why wouldn't we do things that we fundamentally think, I am just so not down with that. Yeah. I mean, why wouldn't we do that? Like, that's part and parcel of like what we're talking about here like and if you're the kind of person like me for to be honest like me yeah that you know when i go to look for podcasts to you know you know crush when i'm at the gym or on the commute or whatever i'm looking for something i want to hear right which means i'm looking for something that i already kind of agree with (laughs) or know i'm going to very true and it does take a certain amount of discipline and fortitude to say what yeah, I'm so not down with that, but I'm going to listen anyway. So for for those of you that did that, <laughs> we salute you, a deconstructionist salute. And and I think the important thing to note, and and this is something that we actually just talked about, and I'm going to say something about it briefly because we have to get to this episode, and we're going to cover this in a later episode anyway. But I think I think we need to be very careful that we're not just replacing. One quote, I'm doing finger quotes, finger expert. Quotes. Yeah, expert. For another finger quote, expert. Air quotes, expert. You know, because every, everybody's an expert, and it's, it's easy to, like, e- even, even like me or you. Like, right. Like, don't, 
don't just believe what we're telling you. People just, don't. Just take <laughs> take what we're saying <laughs> as like gospel, as it were. It's not. But like, go out and do your own homework. Go out and do your own research. And like, like we need to stop doing that. Just it, it's the belief by proxy thing all over again. Yes. If all you're doing is replacing one expert with another, that's yep. all I'm saying. Yep. Just to clue them in a little bit on a conversation that we were just having, like you a know, really the, good the, conversation. The church is always in these four walls, right? And the four walls are real. You know, you actually meet in a building. You know, in most places in the world. But then the four walls become also symbolic of a structure that surrounds you that you can't find yourself. It's it, the church doesn't exist outside this quote unquote structure, or you know the the community, or you know the identity, or whatever doesn't exist out of some structure. And that's and that's honestly what this podcast and and the spirit of whatever it is we're doing here is meant to fly in the face of. We're supposed to say no. That's the same mistake in a new dress. Exactly. It's the same mistake wearing new clothing. And, and what would be really cool is if we could all learn actually how to listen to people we don't necessarily agree with, um, think for ourselves a little bit more, and engage compassionately yeah. in the conversation. And do some hard work. And that's what I don't see a lot of right now. I see a lot of, um, you know, myself included. This is just introspective. I just want another expert to show me a new promised land. Yeah. It's easier that way. So much easier. Someone to do the work, the hard work for you. It feels so good. And, and honestly, I think that's, that's what's motivated um, the, the most recent stuff that I've been reading. It's like I've, I've been challenging myself to read about topics that, that I'm so sure of. Oh, yeah. You know, and I'm like, you know what? I'm going to read a dissenting opinion Boom. And, see, and see how I feel then. Oh, so good. And, and it's actually been a lot of fun. I didn't know you were doing that. I'm doing that too right now. See, look at that, man. No, I seriously didn't know you were doing that. I, yeah. I decided it's been a long time since I read Nietzsche. Oh. Yeah. And man, so many things that I agree with mm-hmm. that I wouldn't have before and that I read now and I still think is bogus. And yeah. it, but it's such a fun exercise because I can't sleepwalk through it. Right. I can't. Well, it's like Pete, our good friend Peter, Peter Rollins does Dr. Peter Rollins. Dr. Peter Rollins. Um, does that annual um, atheism, atheism for Lent, Lent. Yep. where he intentionally says, like, look, we are going to read uh, these, uh, this atheist um, literature, these, these critiques, because it's right. important. And, you know, a lot of times there are some, some very good critiques, yeah. and there's some good questions that are asked that we need to ask of ourselves. Right. And uh, I, I think it's a healthy exercise. I think it's really good. All that to say, yes, we so, now have... Um, a phenomenal guest that so many of you have asked for for so long. So thank you for being patient. Um, we actually interviewed him a little while ago. Oh, my gosh. So Brian freaking Zond. Yes. Has a just fire. It's just fire, this new book. It's called Sinners in the Hands of a Loving God. Yes. Obviously a play off the Edwards sermon. Right. Um, the, uh, the, what do they call it? The subtitle is the scandalous truth of the very good news. Yeah. And, uh, um, there's, there's a little, uh, remark written on the back by, um, Sarah Bessie, one of our favorite guests we've ever had. Yeah, man. That was a fun episode. And just what a great book, man. It's a really great book. And, um, for those of you that, uh, you know, you don't have as much time to actually sit down with a hard copy book. Um, Brian, you know, actually put most of this in a sermon format and preached it from yeah. his pulpit. So you can check out Word of Life Church podcast and, and get the sermons there. And I highly recommend anyone uh, on the spiritual journey 
on a journey of transformation, transcendence, uh, transcending and including those kinds of things to check out this book. Really, really do it, guys. No matter where you're at, atheist, agnostic, Buddhist, Hindu, Muslim, uh, spiritual but not religious, you know, ex-Christian, whatever. The, I, I cannot tell you how thoughtful, sensitive, compassionate, brilliant, scholarly, wonderfully fresh, and ancient at the same time this book was. I am a huge, huge fan. Huge and fan. I, I say that not in a, um, I automatically agree with everything in this book. This book forced me to put it down multiple times and go, dang, <laughs> like what? Yeah. I, I love that I have no idea how I, like I haven't heard it put that way before. Yeah. So when I say I love it, that's not me just like giving him a high five and a golf clap. That's me saying like, you made right. me think, dude. Like, right. wow, thank you for making me think. And, and that is crucial and important. And, and we, I think we talked about this probably over a year ago, a year and a half ago, um, when we first had you know, our, our buddy Pete Rollins on. Yep. And we talked about, um, I think you and I both read um, his book, Insurrection. Insurrection. Uh, that was our, our introduction into his work. And <sighs> multiple times, like, I want to drop kick that book across the room. Sorry, I not, sorry, Pete. I was not ready for that. Well, no. it, just, it just elicited so... I didn't realize how much of an echo chamber I had Yes, until I read that book. And I realized like, whoa, I'm really not good at reading things that I wasn't expecting it to say. Yeah. I'm not good at reading a book that (laughs) I always think when I pick up a book, because I've lived in an echo chamber most of my life, that I'm going to pick up this book and and basically it's just going to make me feel good. And I'm going to kind of know what's coming, but I'm going to like the language they use. And it's like, hey, high five, Adam, for being right. Just a giant high five. You're awesome, dude. (laughs) And, 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 and that book, and in a lot of ways, this book just kicked me in the teeth in a good way, in a really good way that I need. Yes. So we also talk a lot about Dostoevsky, yes. <laughs> which was my favorite part <laughs> yes. of this conversation, but we'll talk about all that after the episode. Uh, Brian Zahn is a pastor of Word of Life Church. He is a, you know, an author, speaker, teacher, and, and ecumenical too. This guy does not stay in one predictable stream. He's all over the map. He loves um, the, the Jesus that he would say is an accurate picture of the Jesus, not the puritanical, Americanized, nationalistic. <laughs> European Jesus. European Jesus. <laughs> but like an actual, you know, um, a different, not even different, but like uh, unique for the Western world take on, on who Jesus might have been, the insurrectionist, the, uh, the movement leader against the state that, that died at the hands of the state. And um, this book is fantastic. So... Go get this one. He's got some other books out there. Water to Wine, A Farewell to Mars, Beauty Will Save the World, Unconditional, and uh, What to Do on the Worst Day of Your Life. Um, Also, um, likewise, this book might end up on our book club. Oh, yeah, for sure. Uh, So those of you who who aren't already uh, members of the book club, um, if that's something you're interested in and something you can financially do, um, it's, it's a really cool thing we're offering through our Patreon campaign, which you can find through our, our newly revamped website. Thank you, Ryan Battles. Ryan Battles. www.thedeconstructionist.com. You can link to us on social media. Uh, you can send us emails, uh, love notes, hate mail, whatever you prefer. And we like all of it. We like all of it. Um, you can uh, subscribe to us, um, and you can also um, join up on uh, Patreon, become part of the Patreon family. We have lots of really cool, like, um, 
rewards and things of that nature. But the big one is uh, the most popular one by far is uh, is our book of the month club, where if you join uh, every month, we will actually ship out uh, a, a carefully curated book um, uh, to your house. Yep. Uh, even if you live in um, the Bahamas, which that <laughs> shipping was not cheap. <laughs> yes. Apparently, there's not an Amazon warehouse in the Bahamas. There's not. There's not. <laughs> there's not. But Amazon will still ship it. Yes, they will. So uh, no matter where you live, we will find you, and we will ship you that book thank every you, month. Thank you, Jeff Bezos. That's right. <laughs> it was awesome. So thank you guys who are currently supporting already. Um, yeah, from people that are a dollar all the way up to some really insanely high givers. We don't know why you're doing that, but thank you. <laughs> yes. And, um, and, and just so you guys know, we are working on a lot of things, um, as a result, like we're, we're going to have the freedom to do some really cool events this year. Oh yeah. Including a, a, a live tour, um, that we are, are fueling the tank working on. So you guys are putting fuel in the tank. So the some best thing you can things. do yes. if you guys want us to come to your town is to, uh, to, to basically like get as many people in your area into this podcast as you possibly can. Uh, five-star reviews on iTunes, absolutely 100% help other people find us. It gives us exposure. Um, so, so like, be our street team. Help, help get, get a following going in your area. Um, we're definitely going to need your help uh, figuring out venues and things of that nature. But we promise you uh, we will bring a really cool, unique live show um, as well as music and uh, some other surprises. So yep. start thinking about that. We're looking at springtime. It's going to be amazing. It's going to be awesome. But for now, to the episode. Yes. Without further ado, we give you Brian freaking Zahn. Pastor Brian Zond, this has been a really long time coming. We've been following your work for quite some time with, uh, with great affection, and uh, it's just a joy and, a, and an honor to have you here. Thanks for hanging out with us. Well, thank you. Glad to be here. Well, before we, before we get started here, um, for some of our listeners who maybe aren't as familiar with your work, uh, maybe give them a, a, a brief backstory about who you are and, and how you came into the work that you currently do, because we know that We've heard that you started preaching at a at a pretty young age, which is uh, pretty pretty unique. Preaching in the sandbox. <laughs> well, you know, I have been a pastor really longer than I've been an adult, <laughs> which is not recommended, but it's pretty much what happened. I was I was running a Christian coffee house. This was back in the Jesus Movement era. Uh-huh. I'm 58. I'll just I'll just put the mystery away right there. <laughs> How old is this guy anyway? <laughs> but um, so, yeah, I was running a, it was called a coffee house. You know, this is Jesus movement here. It was mostly a music venue, but by the time I was 22, it had somehow <laughs> turned into a church. Oh, man. <laughs> and I have been pastoring that church, Word of Life Church in St. Joseph, Missouri, for coming up on 36 years now. Wow. Dang. And uh, of late, I've been writing some books, books like Unconditional, Beauty Will Save the World, Farewell to Mars, Water to Wine, and my latest book, Sinners in the Hands of a Loving God. So that's, you know, I'm a pastor, author, speaker, dylanologist. <laughs> that's about <laughs> it. 
Yeah, your your books are super, super insightful, fun to read. They just uh, pack a lot of good scholarship into a really down-to-earth approach. We definitely encourage our listeners to pick up as many copies of those as possible. But I've uh, been following your work for a while now, and uh, one of the things that I think is so uh, special about the way you approach spirituality, and especially Christian spirituality, obviously, is that you yourself have been through a little bit of a metamorphosis um, that's come, you know, brought you to the point where you started to author a lot of these books. You know, some people call that, right. um, you know, transformation or, you know, a, a season of shifting or, you know, the namesake of our podcast, uh, like a deconstruction of sorts. But like, how did you, how did you, how did that happen to you? Well, how's that part of your story as well? If, uh, as a pastor, that's, that's pretty hey. unique. I didn't name all the books I've actually published because I have some that I don't name anymore. But, uh, well, it really started, it, it, it first began uh, around the year 2000 when I was you know, about 40. And I, I just began to have this growing discontent, not with Jesus. Right. My fascination with Jesus has been unwavering ever since I was a teenager, but I was just feeling like the Jesus I was so captured by deserved a better Christianity than I knew. Mm. Christianity I knew seemed weak, watery, thin. It looked a whole lot like the assumed cultural values of America with a Jesus fish slapped on it. (laughs) And, and I, this, 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 um, anxiety, this unease gnawed at me. And so I began, I began to think, well, I just need to back up here. And so I started reading church fathers, mm. some philosophy because I've always liked philosophy and, uh, classic literature just because I had given up reading what today I would call the easy, cheesy cotton candy Christianity yeah. of just sort of American pop Christianity. Yeah, I, yeah, I've heard you say that. I was weary of those books. I couldn't read them anymore. And I didn't know where to turn. I mean, I was really embarrassingly ignorant of the good stuff. Hmm. I, and this sort of went on for about four years until in 2004, I just really had to make a break with that. And uh, I stumbled upon Dallas Willard's Divine Conspiracy. Really, how, how it happened is oh. rather fascinating because— I was sensing that even though I was, you know, benefiting from reading uh, literature, patristics, and philosophy, I, I knew I needed something more contemporary, but didn't I just didn't know. Sure. And I, I actually prayed. I mean, it, this doesn't happen all the time, these sorts of things, but sometimes they do. And I prayed. I said, God, show me what to read. I mean, I just it was a very sincere prayer. Five minutes later— <laughs> Wife walks into the room. She has no idea what I've prayed. She just walks up to me, hands me a book, and says, "Here, I think you should read this." Wow. <laughs> she not read it. We don't even know how it got in our house, but it was Dallas Willard's Divine Conspiracy. So good. And that was like a door being kicked open, oh, and yeah. and very quickly, just one thing led to another. So I'm reading Dallas Willard, and then I'm reading N.T. Wright, and then Walter Brueggemann, and Stanley. Mm. And, and David Bentley Hart and Rene Girard and Carl Barth. And, and I was just in an avalanche of rich, substantive theology for about four or five years. 
I look back on that period of time where I would read, you know, five, six hours a night of hardcore academic theology and never was bored. It was never like somebody had a gun to my head and you've got to do this. It was I had struck gold and couldn't pull it out of the ground fast enough. Yeah, we get it. Yeah. I kept thinking, well, where have you been all my life? Of course, it had been there, but I was just sequestered in some little, you know, cul-de-sac of Christianity that was unaware of this or uninterested in this. And when I found it, it it was life-changing. And that sounds like, you know, cliche, but it was. And, of course, then that also changes your preaching. Mm. So this is a lot of the story of telling water to, water to wine. Yeah. Uh, but, you know— um, I remember the Sunday in 2004 when I got up and told my church, I'm packing my bags from the charismatic movement. I'm moving on. Now, at the time, they cheered because, you know, if you're a good preacher, you can do it in such a way that people think there must be something exciting about this. (laughs) (laughs) Very nice. And they cheered until I actually did it. And then uh, not everybody was thrilled. Um, the, The biggest pushback I got, there was several areas, but the biggest was when I began to critique American civil religion, Mm. that is, uh, religious right and that sort of thing aligned with the American empire, just using phrases like American empire. (laughs) Oh, sure. We're going to have to edit that out. So we had, we had to go through some, watch this, watch this. We had to go some, through some deconstruction in our church. Sure. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, but we've gone through that. And today, our church is, I don't know, I think it's healthier than it's ever been. It's just, it's, I just love this church, and mm-hmm. uh, which is something, you know, <laughs> a pastor of a church for 36 years, and he says, I love this church. That's, uh, that's a good know, thing. And that's one of the bits of advice I would give to pastors. I mean, if you're going to be at a church long term, build a church that you would actually go to. Oh, man. <laughs> if you weren't the pastor. There's an idea. <laughs> yeah. So I would go to this church even if I didn't get to preach on Sunday mornings. And so that's a little bit of our story. Wow. That's fantastic. Um, <clears throat> this new book uh, is, is, is fantastic. Adam and I have both, both been reading it. And uh, um, I, I commented to Adam before we started recording, I, I, felt, I feel like there's so much uh, content in this book that it really should be 2,000 pages long. You know, you cover... Uh, atonement. You cover uh, Old Testament violence. You cover um, hell. You you cover a whole whole breadth of of topics here. Um, well, here's what I'm up to. I you know, in my heart, I'm a pastor. Mm. Now, for the past you know, thirteen, fourteen years, I've become. I think I can say this rather well read theologically. Mm-hmm. I'm conversant in academic theology. I can discuss this with people. I can lecture in seminaries, and I do that sort of thing. But my heart really is for the common person, you know, that that they're never going to read an academic book. They don't need to. They shouldn't. They wouldn't be able to if they tried. Can I take some of our best thinking about God as revealed in Christ and distill it down to where it actually can benefit uh, the people that show up in church on Sunday morning. Mm. Because I feel like a lot of time, a lot of our best thinking about God gets stuck in academic circles. Mm. And, and I want to try to be a translator. I want to try to 
can I speak this in the vernacular of the common person? Because if not, then what's the point? I mean, at some point, you know, so that's why I'm not trying to write 2,000-page academic books. <laughs> I'm not really qualified to do that. I think I could make a stab at it, but I just have no heart to do that. I, um, you know, I just, right before I logged on here to do this interview, I, um, I saw someone had tweeted a picture of my book, and how did they say it? Uh, this is balm to my wounded by fundamentalism soul. Oh, well, do you, wow. that's, that's what I want to write a book for. Yes, that's great. I want to write a book that's balm for a wounded by fundamentalism soul. Amen. Yes. Yeah, that's good stuff, man. Well, I, I think it's almost more difficult to, uh, to do what you did, uh, which was to accomplish uh, taking that heavy or that many uh, different uh, subjects and boil them down into uh, something that the average person could pick up and, and identify with on that level. So congratulations. I, I mean, we loved it. So 100%. Man. It's always harder to take a gallon of content and put it in a teaspoon of words than, than yeah. take a teaspoon of content and stretch it out to a gallon of words. Well, there's, there's something to that. Yeah, that's a real discipline to be able to work at that until you get it so it's simple. Speaking, but speaking of a gallon of words, we have something else in common. I've recently gotten into Dostoevsky. Mm. <laughs> Good for you. And, and, and I know you've got a little thing for Dostoevsky, don't you? Yeah, I do. I have a serious man crush on <laughs> Okay, just to, just to let everybody a, tune out for us. Yeah. <laughs> Who, how did you get into Dostoevsky? Why? And why should everybody read Dostoevsky? Just as a fun question before we dive into your book. Let's see. How did I? I remember. I just remembered. And it's funny, sort of. Uh, <laughs> it was probably about the year 2000. And I was reading, do you remember Parade Magazine? I don't know if it still yeah. even exists. Yeah. yeah, definitely. It would show up in the newspaper, like on Sundays or something. Yep. And it was an interview with uh, Laura Bush, George Bush. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And she's a librarian, you know, by, by vocation. And they asked her her favorite novel. And she said, The Brothers Karamazov. That's oh, what I'm reading right now. Dostoevsky. And I just thought, yeah, I should probably read that. And I did. <laughs> I read four times. And, and uh, I'll read it again. And it's one of, along with the Bible and the Book of Common Prayer, it's my third desert island book it's blowing my mind man father zosima it's like can oh, i yeah. can i find that pastor somewhere <laughs> well you know he, he, there's a ton of his theology in sinners in the hands of loving god and of course elder zosima is a he's a fictional character uh, i know but yeah. but is now, he <laughs> he is based on a composite of a couple of monks see right before uh dostoevsky wrote the brothers karamazov uh, one of his children had died yeah. uh, about the age of two or three, maybe four. I don't know. I can't remember now exactly. And as part of the healing process for his soul, he went and spent a protracted time at an Orthodox monastery and had long conversations with these monks. And he turns them into one composite figure. 
the interesting thing about Dostoevsky, and I've read you know, lots of his stuff multiple times, is when Dostoevsky was writing as Fyodor Dostoevsky, because he, he wrote, you know, he had a magazine that he edited and he wrote opinion pieces. He wrote nonfiction, contemporary nonfiction. He's not very good. He comes across as kind of narrow-minded, uh, a little bit nationalist, maybe a lot nationalist. Uh, it's just uninspiring. Hmm. But when he went to write fiction, he was able to channel these other characters. And what I say about the Brothers Karamazov is it is a tremendous theological work disguised as the world's greatest novel. I completely agree. Yeah, and I can tell you, as one who has read a lot of theology in the last 10, 12, 13 years, that's the one that novel shows up so often. I mean, there, there, there isn't a second place. There's no rival. There isn't any novel that shows up remotely in academic theology as often as Brothers Karamazov. We could talk but, about this all day. But, but if our <laughs> listeners are, are wanting to tackle it, just know it's a very long book. Don't read it in a hurry. No. Don't, don't try to say, okay, where are all these good parts that, you know, Brian Zahn's talking about? Just let the story be told. Let it be a story because there, it, it is, in part, a murder mystery. So let that part be there. And just let it speak to you and get the right translation. And the right translation is the one by Pavir and Balakonsky. That's it's two people. That's the new one, right? Yeah, it's relatively new. Husband and wife team, yep. Pavir Balakonsky. Yeah, that's the one I'm reading. And you know what? It is absolutely incredible. And it's a little bit longer than Sinners in the Hands of a Loving God, which we're going to turn back to <laughs> right now. Because... I'm resisting the impulse to ask you like a million questions about the brothers Karamazov. <laughs> so, so sinners in the hands of an angry God, obviously I, I've got like some big reformed roots. Like, you know, I was, I was heavy into reformed theology in my twenties, you know, jumped on that bandwagon with everything I had. Cause it just, you know, when you're young, it's easy you to, young, a young man looking for something better than American pop Christianity. I was, I and was. that was the easiest thing to locate on the radar. Totally, because I, I meet people like that all the time. Yeah, because truth, or oftentimes power sounds like truth, and, yeah. and just being <laughs> and being loud sounds like truth. Yeah, all and, right, and, I hear. Yeah, and that and that was easy for me. So uh, I I consumed tons of Edwards' work. I mean, right. I read tomes of Edwards because mm-hmm. that's what you do when I, you don't I have friends. Back in the day, yeah. <laughs> so and, and what, in one sense, I'm not completely fair to Edwards. Hmm. I mean, look, I have no problem with working as a foil off of sinners in the hands of an angry God because, A, it is deplorable. Right. And, B, no sermon has influenced the American religious imagination more than that sermon. Very true. So so we have to deal with it. It's there. On the other hand, it doesn't represent the whole of Edwards' work. Now, I'm not a Calvinist. I'm not even remotely a Calvinist. I'm like a <laughs> zero-point Calvinist. But, but, you know, Edwards did some really good work, too. His, his essay on the Trinity. Oh, you, yeah. You can, find, you can find it online for free. It's called An Unpublished Essay on the Trinity. It's Obviously, it's published. <laughs> but it's called An Unpublished Essay on the Trinity. I, it's one of the best short things you can ever read on the Trinity. Oh, it's, it's brilliant. It's philosophical. It's, it's, yeah. abs- it's like psychological, it's proto-psychological. Mm-hmm. It's amazing. I love that essay. So, so, you know, 
Um, and I, I did the copy that you have that does have the foreword in it because the, some of the pre-publication copies didn't have the foreword in it. Um, no, we do not have the foreword. You know, the foreword by by Paul Young. Uh, let me just can I can I just read you something? Yeah, please. Sure. What he does is I really liked what he did. You know, he, he gives one of the quotes from Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. But he also has this quote. He doesn't tell you who it is, but here's a quote. The apostle tells us that God is love, and therefore seeing he is an infinite being, it follows that he is an infinite fountain of love. Yep. Seeing he is an all-sufficient being, it follows that he is full and overflowing and an inexhaustible fountain of love. And in this, he is unchangeable and eternal. He is an unchangeable and eternal fountain of love. Well, that's also Edwards. Mm -hmm. It's Edwards later in life. And Paul Young brings out the point. It's Edwards after he had been through some suffering. Uh, You know, he was not appreciated by his church. Eventually, they kind of just ran him out of town. Yeah, they did. And uh, so... I'm really glad that that Paul Young did that because because I'm not really trying to start a war with with you know the long dead Jonathan Edwards. No, but not at all. That, that sermon is out there and it represents a certain way of approaching God. And yeah, I'm not a Calvinist. And I, and when I wrote the book, I thought, well, this is going to help people like that person just said to me before we came to this podcast. Um, balm for a wounded by fundamentalism soul. And I yeah. thought I I, I kind of knew. When I'd finished the manuscript, this is going to help people. People are going to dig it. The one class of person that's just going to dismiss it out of hand is someone who has uh, an absolute commitment to the system of Calvinism. Yes. You're not committed to this system. Well, then, you know, you're going to have to either really rethink some things to the extent that you're throwing away the system or not. And so I just kind of knew the people that are deeply committed at this point in their journey to Calvin's ism, um, they're going to have a problem with the book. Mm. Other than that, people are going to like it. Yeah, well said. I, I think um, I think a lot of our listeners, you know, I, I would say just to take a wild guess that the vast majority of our listeners, the people that listen to our podcast, are, are people that came out of a more of a fundamentalist upbringing and 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 do have what what I think you refer to as a spiritual PTSD almost. And yeah, yeah right. So I would love for you to That's kind of, ex- and I mean, yeah. you know, uh, I uh, I started a a uh, sermon series kind of based on the book um, a couple of weeks ago. In the introduction to that series, the first sermon in the series, I put up some pictures of chick tracks. You all know about chick tracks. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> and and man, so many people afterwards came up and told me, man. Those things were horrible, and I had I talked to some people that were you know, like like you know theological professors that are you know really good thinkers when it comes to the Bible and Scripture. They said even you know even though I went on and got a really good theological education, those chick tracks that I read when I was you know twelve years old stuck in my mind, and it I still have to deal with that image of God as a faceless white giant who is remorseless. In throwing sinners into an eternal torture chamber, that sort of thing. So, um, yeah, 
I forgot what we were, what we were talking about there, but yeah. <laughs> oh no, I, I think the the question I was I was uh, uh, starting to ask was that how do we? You know, there's so many people out there. We wouldn't have a podcast if it wasn't for the fact mm-hmm. that there are you know quite a quite a number of people who who kind of are suffering from this sort of spiritual P, uh, PTSD. So how do we how do we course correct uh, in in regards to the way that we portray God, and how do we help those who have been damaged by this? This, uh, you know, this angry, vengeful God yeah. who's just disgusted by us at all times. Yeah. Well, America has a Puritan soul. <laughs> yeah. You know, religiously, America has a Puritan soul. And there's so much anger and retribution in the image of God within the Puritan soul. Mm. We could wish that it had been other. You know, what if, what if, what if the American religious imagination had been captured as much by George MacDonald yes. as with um, Jonathan Edwards, but it didn't happen. And so, you know, look, the God that atheists don't believe in is the angry, violent, retributive God. You, you understand what I'm saying? Totally. Absolutely. There, there is a definition of a general anyway. I'm not talking at a philosophical level, but at a popular level, there is a fairly uh, consistent definition of the God atheists don't believe in, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> which is a statement. You see what I'm doing there? Totally. But, but so, so what I'm saying is there's an awful lot of atheists in America who are protest atheists. Yep. And they're not philosophical atheists. They're protest atheists, and they're saying this God should not exist, and therefore our society doesn't. Well, I'm with them on that. In fact, and there's, a, there's a time when a, when a certain kind of motivated atheist can be making a morally responsible move. Now, I think there's a better way of doing it than that. Yep. But so, so what I'm saying is even if people didn't grow up in a full-on, hardcore, fundamentalist Baptist church, there's just enough of that in the water. There's just enough of that in the cultural milieu of America that people kind of have picked up the idea that God is violent, angry, and retributive. And if you're going to be saved, what you need to be saved from is from that God, and that's where Jesus steps in. Yep. And so you end up with, without it being said just so, because it's theologically untenable to keep pressing this, but the general idea is that Jesus saves us from God. Basically. Jesus saves us from his father who has obvious anger issues, which, you know, that, that, rep, that describes a lot of evangelistic preaching in America. And, you know, p- people, depending on who they are, may say, OK, yes, I'm going to I'm going to receive Jesus as my Lord and Savior so that uh, I can get in good with his dad. Um you know, that, that that may be the doorway into Christian faith for people, but it can later on be the doorway out of Christian faith. Yep. So if you're going to if you're going to bring people into Christian faith by terrorizing them, evangelism by terrorism, when they're 12 years old or 15 years old or 44 years old, right. uh, don't be surprised if some of them, when they get a little older, also for the very same reason, leave the faith. Yeah. Man, so true. There's so many things that um, I found so provocative in, in a good way in this book. What I, what I love about your book is it gives plenty of um, 
answers. It gives plenty of, it doesn't just leave you hanging everywhere and just say, oh, there's a different way of looking at it and then just move on. There's lots of great track that you lay for people to start to, to dig into other people's work and the footnotes and things like that. And I think one of the, the big things that a lot of us, myself included, are going to have to start to look at once we look at the way that you depict God in Jesus, as you say it in the book, is uh, looking at Jesus should change the way that we read the Bible. So, right. you know, the biggest problem that people have, obviously, is like, oh, the God of the Old Testament's this, rant, you know, raging, mm-hmm. you know, ticked off guy with a white beard that's throwing thunder, thunderbolts down, you know, blah, 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 you know, killing innocent men, women, and children at every turn of page and justifying blah, blah, blah. But, you know, you kind of come to this really great logical, almost Socratic, you know, point in the book where you're like, you know, look, there's, there's three options and, we, you know, we... It comes down to looking at maybe changing the way you read the Bible. Could you talk about that just a little bit and expand yeah. on it a little bit? Because I think that is so good. Look, there's no getting around the fact here. I can do it just right now. Let me let me flip open to some scripture. I, and this is this is like, <laughs> this isn't like the standard interview thing I give. I've never said this before. I just read it this morning. I mean, I read the Bible, okay? I I still read the Bible. I read the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, every day. And in 1 Samuel 15, you have, uh, you know, a rather famous passage where um, Samuel is saying, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obedience to the voice of the Lord? Mm. Surely to obey is better than sacrifice. Man, there's a prophetic edge there that is good. You see that? Yeah, God is not into just empty ritualism. God wants obedience from the heart. But come on. This is in the same chapter as, and in the same context as uh, you just back up about 18 verses and you read this. Um, now, this is, this is Yahweh speaking. Now, go and attack Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have, do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and baby. <laughs> Yikes. Well, come on. <laughs> so, so later on, so later on, you have Samuel saying, um, "For rebellion is no less a sin than divination, and stubbornness is like iniquity and idolatry." But I want to ask the text: uh, Where does genocide fit in? <laughs> right? Where is that? Is that somewhere on the scale of? Okay, so. You know, you have these problems. So if I ask you this question, if God told you to kill babies, would you? Now, there's only one answer to the question. The answer is no, hell no. Okay, that's the answer. That's right. no, exactly. Hell John, no. John was hesitating. I knew what I wanted to say. Oh, stop. <laughs> <laughs> so that's the answer to the question. If someone does hesitate, it's because they have been coached to read the Bible in a certain way that causes them to hesitate. But look, when you have been framed or formed to read the Bible in a way that causes you to hesitate about the moral, non-negotiable, it's not, it's never moral to kill babies, then you have a real problem. Yeah. So what we have to do is, we have to say, we have, we have some choices. First of all, we can say, well, um, we can question the morality of God. We can just say, well, you know, sometimes, you know, God acts immorally, but he's God and he can do what he wants. And it's all to his glory, as, you know, our Calvinist brothers and sisters would say. 
the Calvinist sisters don't speak up much. It's probably mostly the brothers. The Calvinist, <laughs> <laughs> it's all to the glory of God. It's true. It's true. Uh, you can you can do that, um, or you can maybe make a little different move, and you can say uh, when God tells us when God tells us to kill babies, it's not immoral. Well, that's that's very dangerous. You're leaving the door open, and don't don't be surprised if unscrupulous people rush through that door and use it to justify their own genocides because it's happened. All the I time. mean, it's been done. Oh, yeah. I mean, I mean, the genocidal treatment of the native peoples of North America was justified by the way they read the book of Joshua and other passages in the Old Testament. So you, you, you can question the morality of God or the morality of killing babies. Or you can say, well, you know, God is in the process of change. It's something God used to do, and uh, he's not doing that anymore, and... You have a change, and you know, isn't that great? Uh, well, uh, you know, that, that's a real strong move against traditional orthodoxy yep. to suddenly begin to see God as not immutable but mutable. That is, God is mutating, and I'm quite uncomfortable with that because it feels like, well, you know, what is the ground of our faith? If God is changing, then what's going on here? Right. I would suggest it's more like this. Uh, the most obvious fact in nature is that the sun rises in the east, travels across the sky, sets in the west. It happens every day, except none of that's true. <laughs> it's an illusion. It appears that that's what's happening. And I'm still amazed that we ever figured it out. But was really happy. Can you imagine the first guy that said, you know, I've been thinking, and I don't think it's the sun that's moving. I think we're moving. No doubt they burned him at a stake for a heretic, right? Oh, absolutely. But, <laughs> so this, this brings me to the third statement. This is the third option. Maybe we learn to read the Bible differently. Now, for some people, this is all going to be a poison. Well, pick your poison then. Are you going to question the morality of God? Are you going to question the immutability of God? Or are you going to question how we read Scripture? Mm. I opt for the third one. Amen. How we read Scripture. I call it scripture. I'm not a Marcion, the Marcionite, despite what my uninformed critics like to say in a very reckless and irresponsible way. Yep. Marcion was a second century heretic who said that the God of the Old Testament, the God of Israel, was not God at all. In other words, he would say Yahweh was a demiurge, a kind of demon, and his solution was just to get rid of the Old Testament and some other things. Uh, that's not me. I call the Old Testament scripture. I call Yahweh the Abba of Jesus. So, um, but what I do say is I say the Old Testament is the inspired telling of Israel's story of coming to know the living God. But along the way, assumptions are made. So stick with the story until you arrive at its culmination with the word made flesh, who is Jesus Christ. The Bible does not stand above the story it tells, but is fully immersed in it. The Bible itself is on the journey to discover the Word of God. Mm. So that's how I read Scripture. And if, if that isn't going to be your solution, then I'm pretty sure you're going to have to do one or two things. You're going to have to say, uh, God is mutating. He's changing over time. Most people, especially anybody from a fundamentalist background, doesn't say that. What they will then say is, well, you know, if God tells you to do it, then it's okay. 
Come on now. I, 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 I think we're asking people to violate their own conscience. And, doing, and that's a very dangerous move. Um, so, yes, the Bible is the record. It's the diary of Israel coming to know the living God. But stay on the journey until you get to Jesus. So if people ask me, you know, what do you believe about the Word of God? I say, I believe in the infallible, inerrant Word of God, and His name is Jesus. Can I get and an Amen. The Bible is a penultimate witness as the Word of God, pointing us to Jesus. What the Bible does perfectly is point us to Jesus. Now, some people will push back a little bit and they say, well, what do we know about Christ outside of Scripture? Well, I think we can identify a trajectory of Christ from within Scripture that takes us beyond Scripture because the Bible doesn't address every issue, and some of the issues it addresses, it gets wrong. For example, the issue of slavery. It's a bit of an embarrassment that the Bible in neither Testament, Old Testament nor New Testament, brings forth a clear denunciation of slavery. In fact, the Bible, Old and New Testament, assumes that it's just a given institution. It's the way things are. Now, to the Bible's defense, most of the time when the Bible's talking about slavery, it's trying, it's trying to mitigate the suffering, but it doesn't have a vision for abolition. And yet, every, you know, every fourth grader in, in the world today knows that slavery is a moral evil and that there's only one possible position toward it, and that is that it's, it's wrong and, and has to be rejected. So if we don't allow the living Christ to continue to speak to us beyond the confines of Scripture, what we do is we put Jesus, the living risen Christ, in a jail called the Bible. And we say Jesus cannot reveal beyond the Bible. Of course he can. I'm, I'm orthodox enough to say I believe Christ is risen and he's Lord. Now, I understand that in a deeply fragmented church, it becomes quite complicated. And we have the problem within Protestantism of, well, we wanted to get rid of one pope. I get that. But what we end up with is a billion popes with everybody, you know, saying, okay, I've got my Bible and I don't need any other help. I'll just read my Bible and make up my own mind. Well, um, here's the thing with the Bible. You can pretty much make it say what you want it to say. Yeah, absolutely. And on its hind legs and dance jig for you. I mean, what, what position culturally, theologically, politically, socially, can you not adopt and then find some verses to proof text it? I just tell people, I said, look, you just tell me what you want to believe. Just tell me what you want to believe. Give me five minutes and I'll give you your verses to prove you're right. Except you're probably not at all right. I can give you the if, if you're going to approach the Bible like that, if I can just find one verse that seems to indicate, you know, that God is violent, angry and retributive. Well, not one verse. I can find the whole bucket loads of them. But is that true? Is it true to the God that is revealed in the person of Jesus Christ? So anyway, that, that was a riff. I just went on there for a Bring while. Bring it, Pastor Zond. <laughs> I can't wait for those sleepless nights. I'm, I'm about to get you going here again because uh, there are two two quotes <clears throat> of yours that I really really liked, and I'd love uh, to see if I if I uh, 
can put these two together here in a way that makes sense. But at one point you said, I'm not afraid of God, but rather afraid of what I'll do to myself. And the other thing that, that I've, I've heard you say that I really liked is we are punished more by our sins than for our sins. And so stop me if I'm putting words in your mouth here, but it, it sounds like what you're trying to say is that we can use our gift of free will for the betterment of the world around us uh, or to the detriment of not only the world around us, but to ourselves. Or as another Christian author once said, we can create all the, the heaven or hell that we want. Yeah. All right. Well, we're talking about maybe the fear of God, the wrath of God. Um, the wrath of God is a biblical metaphor to describe the consequences of going against the grain of love. The universe comes forth from the God who is love. So for sentient moral beings created in the image of God, there is a grain to the universe. That's why the two great commandments are love God, love your neighbor. If you decide to go against that, you say, no, I'm not going to love God. I'm not going to love neighbor. I'm not going to have fidelity to the living God. I'm not going to be interested in justice for my neighbor. Rather, I'm going to be idolatrous and unjust. Then eventually you suffer the shards of self-inflicted punishment. Now, you can call that the wrath of God if you like. The Bible does. But understand we are using a metaphor. And this is something the church fathers were very consistent on. I mean, the Bible talks about God being a what? I mean, a, a tower, a rock, a man, a charioteer, uh, a farmer, a sleeper, <laughs> you know, but those, these are metaphors. And the same is said for the wrath of God, but it doesn't mean the consequences aren't real. The consequences are very real. Uh, but God himself is not angry, violent, or retributive. Rather, it's the arrangement of the world or the universe as God has created it, as it flows forth from his love, that if we go against the way God intends for human beings to live, eventually there is a price to pay. Paul calls it death. The wages of sin is death. But it's not that, but God never has a personal, God never has an attitude toward any sinner that is other than unconditional, unwavering love. But going against that love uh, is self-destructive. You can call that the wrath of God. I call the fear of God that which recognizes this is the case and acts wisely. But the Apostle John talks about how perfect love casts out fear. So the fear of God is a place to begin. That's what the Bible says. It's the beginning of wisdom. It's where we begin to take God seriously. It's, be, it's where we begin to have um, a serious acknowledgement that there is a certain arrangement to the world that if we go against that grain of love and justice is going to be harmful. Uh, I can I can call that the fear of God. But I can also say with St. Anthony the Great, who said, I no longer fear the Lord, but love him. Mm. For perfect love casts out fear. So I can say I'm not afraid of God. And if somebody hears me say that and they say, oh, man, that's reckless and cheap. It's neither reckless nor cheap. It's hard-earned. It's come from a very long journey. But I have come to understand that the God that Jesus called Abba has nothing but love toward me. Now, I can, I can, I, there are monsters in the world, the monsters of war and injustice and racism and greed and self-centeredness. 
These monsters are there, but God is not a monster. I am afraid of how I can harm myself and others if I choose to move against this God revealed in Christ. There's no doubt about that. But this God himself is not angry, violent, or retributed. He is love. Mm. And I think think what what I'm doing in this book, basically, if, if a person has zero instinct at all that God somehow is good, and that somehow if God is connected with Jesus, he's very, very good. If you have that kind of instinct, even a, even just a little glimmer of that, I think this book will help you move in that direction, taking Scripture seriously and be able to move in that direction and say, you know what, I believe that. Now, if you have no if a person says, no, I just, I just, I just really believe that God is, is violent and angry and retributive and he, he's remorseless, um, or as the phrase is in Jonathan Edwards' sermon, let me see if I can pull it up in my memory here, uh, almighty merciless vengeance. If God is a God of almighty merciless vengeance and that doesn't trouble you and you're completely comfortable with that, I don't know if this book will help you, hmm. but if you have even a glimmer of, I think there might be something better than that, but I don't want to just throw away the Bible. I want to engage responsibly and honestly with the text, and I think this book can help you. You see what I'm saying? Absolutely. I'm, I'm, I'm writing the book for people that, that want to believe God is good and still hold on to their Bible. So, so it's not a liberal move to say, oh, well, just for, who cares what the Bible says? Just forget the Bible. I'm not forgetting the Bible, but I'm also acknowledging if you don't want to believe that God is love, there is a way to you look, I can promise you that Westboro Baptist people know their Bibles as far as knowing the text. I mean, they've they've picketed our church twice. I've met them. Lovely people. And uh, you know, they can they can throw all their Bible verses at you. At some point, there must be a work of the Spirit in our heart to say, I believe I'm going to move in the direction of God being perhaps more loving than I've assumed. Wow. And if you make that move. There is a way to read the Bible in a way that will help you do that. But if you're not interested in that, then you'll never see that way. Mm. So in other words, what I'm not, I'm not saying that all you have to do is just read the Bible um, in just some sort of objective way and you'll arrive at my conclusion. You know, I think it must be the work of the Spirit impelling you to believe that God is love, and then you can get over some of these hurdles without just throwing away the Bible. Love it. Yeah. So one of the, one of the topics that that you don't shy away from in the book, um, and and I thought that you talk about in a, in a way that I think a lot of us have kind of approached the subject, um, and, and I kind of laughed when I read it. Uh, you you bring up the the idea of uh, life after death, and and the way that you you bring it up in the book is you talk about one of your favorite authors, at least at the time, uh, Heschel, who's also yeah. one of our favorites, and. Oh. What what you know? What happens if if Heschel's not a Christian? So you know, does he's, that mean he's going to hell? And, well, yeah. Go ahead. <laughs> I was go just going to say, and I I think personally that um, a heaven without Heschel would be hell. But that's just my own <laughs> personal opinion. <laughs> well, what's happened is we have concocted a system that says all non Christians go to hell. 
Right. Jesus never said anything remotely like that. I understand how the system works. I understand how you arrive at that conclusion. I could do it. I could preach it. I couldn't preach it except disingenuously because I don't believe that. But I understand how you arrive at that. But I'm just telling you, if you take if you treat Jesus seriously as a theologian, which is one of the problems with some of the Reformed crowd, they don't treat Jesus seriously as a theologian. They have a certain misreading of Paul that they want to impose upon Jesus, and Jesus ends up being just an actor in this salvation drama. He becomes a factor in a salvation equation, but they don't really take him seriously as a theologian. Yeah, that was when my Jesus, 20s. First of all, Jesus doesn't talk about hell as much as people think. Well, yes and no. The problem is Jesus doesn't talk about a post-mortem hell as much as people think. He does talk about hell that's about to befall Jerusalem if they don't cease from their hell-bent for destruction, lust for violent revolution against Rome. He says, yeah, you're going to—this whole thing is going to hell, and the, and, the, and the fires will not be quenched, and the worms will not die. And that's exactly what happened 40 years later in A.D. 70 with the maggots and the rotting corpses and the fires of Jerusalem burning as this complete city was destroyed because they didn't know the things that make for peace. They didn't want to follow the Jesus way. So that was hell. But Jesus does occasionally make references to what we would call a post-mortem hell. Let me slow down here. The problem is even that word hell, H-E-L-L, here's the problem. It has picked up so many accumulated meanings over the centuries from Dante to J.T. Chick, that we end up reading back into the text. Yep. And things that are not there, we imagine is there just because we've seen the word hell. It's why most modern translations avoid the word altogether. They yep. just keep Sheol or Hades. And then, you know, Gehenna gets translated different ways. But it's not usually translated hell. Mm. Uh, because that's the problem. We read back into the text things that aren't there. But when Jesus does talk about what we might call hell, post-mortem, the people that end up there are the wicked. And the wicked is not a technical term for all non-Christians. No, it's wicked as conventionally understood. I mean, the rich man in the parable of rich man and Lazarus doesn't end up in hell because he doesn't believe the right things. For all we know, he had impeccable theology. He ends up in hell because of the way he mistreated Lazarus. Wow. Same thing with the sheep and the goats. The goats are not condemned because they didn't pray a sinner's prayer, because they didn't believe the Nicene Creed, because they didn't, you know, accept Jesus in their heart as their Lord and Savior. It's because they, the way they mistreated the poor, the sick, the imprisoned, and the immigrant, Jesus said, I identify with them, and the way you treated them is the way you treated me. First of all, I don't think we even necessarily have to believe that um, the parable of Matthew 25 of the sheep and goats is a post-mortem thing. It's, Jesus doesn't say that. What he says is when the king comes in his glory. And Jesus typically is not talking about what we would call the second coming. He's talking about the arrival of the kingdom of God through what he's done. And what happens is with the arrival of Christ, there, there is eventually established within our consciousness as human beings— a new kind of morality that carries with it the eventual possibility that we end up following the devil into self-destructive, self-inflicted Gehennas because people begin to have a deeper sense of morality and they fight back and it creates wars and revolutions and all sorts of things. I mean, treating your neighbor as they don't want to be treated. 
eventually has consequences. And uh, Jesus is saying, look, if we if you can learn to love your neighbor as yourself, which he ties in with the narrow way in his uh, Sermon on the Mount, this is the way that leads to peace. If you don't want the way of peace, don't be surprised if you end up like Jerusalem in AD 70. An example of that would be the American Civil War. And the American Civil War was when America went to hell and 750,000 people died um, because of, well, it has a lot to do with one of the two original sins of America. That is the enslavement of Africans for the sake of the economy. So, um, but we have this terrible system that says that every Jew is not a Christian. I mean, by definition, you know, a Jew, if they haven't received Jesus, I'm not, not, not talking about a Messianic Jew, so about a Jew, uh, is not saved because they haven't believed on Jesus. And so at death, they all go to hell. And, you know, in these systems, you know, hell is this eternal fire. So every Jew that was thrown by Hitler into the ovens of Auschwitz, that was just the beginning because then God threw them in an eternal Auschwitz. I can't tell you. You know, I've been a pastor 36 years. And I, this has happened more than once in my ministry. Uh, somebody goes off maybe on a college trip and they go to uh, Europe. Maybe at some point they're in Poland and they visit Auschwitz and they have a profound crisis of faith. I'm talking about Christians. Mm. The reality, I mean, they've read about it. They've seen movies on it. They know about the Holocaust, but something about being there. Yeah. At Auschwitz. And then more than one person has come to me in tears and say, Pastor, do I have to believe, to be a Christian, do I have to believe that all of those people, you know, here's, here's Anne Frank, you know, do I have to believe that, that after Anne Frank was murdered by the Nazis, that now she's tortured by God? And of course not. I mean, there's where you just need to kind of go with an instinct and say, something as ugly as that cannot be connected with Jesus. And what I do is I show you pretty conclusively, I think, in my health chapter, that that is the result of a crazy system run amok. Uh, Jesus didn't say anything like that. So, yeah, no, uh, hell is, even if you want to talk in terms of postmortem hell, which the Bible doesn't very much. People think it does, but it really doesn't if you start actually looking at the text. But even when it does, it's speaking about the wicked, not about uh it's people who it's not Jesus. When Jesus talks about a postmortem hell, he's not talking about people who didn't believe right as if they, you know, just flunked a theological quiz and they get tortured forever for it. But he's talking about behavior and about how they were treated. And uh, here, I'll just, I'll just read you a verse that just doesn't fit in these um, certain systems of heaven and hell minimalism, where it's all based upon Jesus being back. asked to your heart, the sinner's prayer sort of stuff. Okay, I'm, I'm going to This is Jesus speaking. Bring this it. is an example of where often Jesus is not taken seriously as a theologian. Uh, John chapter 5, uh, Jesus says, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice, the Son of Man, and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Well, I mean, where does that fit in Reformed theology? Where it's those that have done good 
resurrection life, those who have done evil, resurrection of judgment. Of course, it, it's not even finished then. Well, then what? I mean, Hebrews 9, 27, it's appointed that each man die once, and after that comes the judgment. Well, of course, yes. Yes, Christ is the Logos, the divine logic of God, become a human person, and that he, he's Emmanuel because he's with us in birth, life, struggle, sorrow, all that it means to be human, and then goes down into death and fills death with himself, tramples down death by death as the Orthodox sing every Easter. So Christ now fills all things everywhere with himself, as the Apostle Paul says at the end of Ephesians 1, including death, so that to enter into death is to encounter Christ. And at death, we encounter Christ, and that involves some sort of judgment. There's no place to hide. I mean, what our life is and what we've made of it is now in the presence of the white, hot intensity of the truth of Christ, and there's an evaluation. But then what? I mean, where do we go from there? The Bible is not really clear about it. It doesn't talk about it. Sometimes it talks about, you know, ages of ages of judgment, but yet, you know, is it is it eternal? I think we need to be a lot more humble about what we claim to know mm. about our life. Uh, just, just so I can go on record, I'm not a universalist. I think universalism claims to know too much. Yep. I would record as a universalist sympathizer. For all I know, God is a universalist. Right. If he is, I'm happy. Why would you not at least want it to be true? <laughs> yeah, yeah. If you if you say no, man, I tell you what, there's people I just really do not want to be anywhere but in hell forever. Yikes. Yeah, come on. I think there's something like I don't know. That just it sounds like one of those things that Jesus would turn back on you. <laughs> I agree. And say, well, you know, maybe you're going to spend some time there. I don't know. Uh, universalism, though, is not a heresy. And this is something Christians really need to learn. It's not a heresy. Heresy has to do with basically un- with Christology and things like that. Yep. Universalism is not a heresy. It is a minority position that has been held throughout church history, including by Gregory of Nyssa, yeah. who was the bishop that presided over the Council of Nicaea. So if you start calling Gregory of Nicaea a heretic, well, then where do we? <laughs> you know, we've pulled the rug out from under our own feet. So yeah, not a universalist, but people that are. By universalism, Christian universalism, we don't mean that, uh, you know, Hitler's in the bunker, shoots himself in the head, and now he's in his, you know, instantly he's in his... Uh, you know, luxury resort and everything's fine. There's no consequence. Huh. There is. I've never met a Christian universalist who believes that. What they are simply saying, what Gregory of Nice and others are saying, that I believe that in the end God will be able to redeem all. Mm. All akatastasis is the Greek word, the restoration of all things. Hans Urs von Balthasar wrote a book. Dare we hope that all men be saved. And, uh, and and the all men be saved part in the title is in quotations because it comes from First Peter, where it's that God desires that all men be saved. Yeah, nobody, well, nobody's tweeting make, at him. Yeah, I mean, to make his <laughs> books very, very simple, his answer is, dare we hope that all men be saved? Yes, we dare hope, we dare not say. Yeah. So, uh, but the really, the, the main part I want to push back on is the idea, which is the result of a theological system gone off the rails— that all non-Christians have to end up in an eternal torture chamber. That is not what the scriptures teach. It's just not. No. That's the result of a theological system, not a result of reading scripture as it is. 
So good, man. And there's there, look if for those of you that are listening to this and getting excited like John and I do, um, and, and are right now high fiving each other silently off the mic here. <laughs> there's so much uh, more in in Pastor Brian Zahn's literature. We just really encourage you guys if you're in a place um, that you found yourself transitioning out of maybe that uh, that heartbreaking fundamentalism where you needed some balm. We couldn't recommend this guy highly enough. You know, some of the other t- uh, titles of the chapters in this book that we're just not going to be able to get to as far as questions here is like, Who Killed Jesus? The Crucified God? The Anthem of the Lamb? Love Alone is Credible? There's so much more. Um, we really encourage you guys, go out, pick up, pick up sinners in the hands of a loving God. And um, while we got you on the line, just one more question. I know we're getting right. short, short on time here, but... To, to the crowd you're speaking to right now that find themselves, for, for whatever reason, tuning into a podcast named The Deconstructionists, um, you know, it, it's a title that we wrestle with ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot that can be said at that, but having a pastor like you on the line with a pastoral heart, we'd love to just carve out a minute or two here at the end. to You can address our listeners and talk to them a little bit about maybe um, what maybe some caution, some warnings, some encouragement about being in a season like this. Yeah, you can't deconstruct forever. Nope. At some point, you have to find the pearl of great price. And what I would say is hold on to Jesus because that's what attracted you in the first place. I know that as Christianity develops and mutates and Sometimes metastasizes throughout history. There can be a lot of ugly things that come along. I know that. But still, they're at, at the center of it, there is Jesus. Hold on to Jesus and maybe hold on to this idea. I don't think it's too radical. I don't think it's too daring. But I do think it can be completely saving. And that is, which is really maybe the very basic theme of my book, that God is like Jesus. Mm. God has always been like Jesus because God doesn't change. He's always been like Jesus. We haven't always known this. That's part of the problem. We haven't always known this, but now we do. And isn't that the best news? I mean, just just imagine for a moment. Even if you're not sure, just, just imagine. Would it be good news if God was just like Jesus? I think anybody that has ever brushed up against Jesus in any way, in the Gospels or somewhere in life or in some moment of prayer, you think, yeah, that would be good. Well, that is the good news, that Jesus is the perfect revelation of who God is. Mm. So that's something you can hold on to. As everything else deconstructs, you can hold on to that, that that. God is just like Jesus. Amen. Mm. That's, that's such a beautiful way to end, end, end our time together. Uh, but before we let you go, um, we really you know, just want to say thank you. We appreciate our time with you. This has been a lot of fun. Uh, but uh, where can we send people who want to keep up on what you're up to and, and want to get a copy of this book? Uh, I'm pretty easy to find. If you just Google Zahn, you're going to probably find me, Z A H. Not a lot of them out there. Uh, you know, you can find it on Amazon and certain bookstores. Uh, but really, you know, you can find me on Twitter, Facebook, all those uh, usual places. And because <laughs> of my name, it's not hard to find. Just Google Brian's on, you'll find it all right there. And we'll make that easy for everybody. Thank you so much for being with us. Uh, hope we get to do this again sometime and just keep doing what you're doing. You're, you're a needed 
place and a needed voice in, in the time we find ourselves in. Thank you very much. All right. Take care now. I just, that's, I mean, so many of these are like that, but that episode could have been four hours long. Yes. Well, when you, when you get a guy like that, he's been a pastor, like literally in this case, since he was like 16 years old and, and you get somebody who has gone through this, this journey and walked down this path and has gone through an evolution of his faith and has put in the hard work. Like the, the guy, like you heard him, like he studied a, Everything he get his hands on, just devoured uh, material and and just like did the work. Yep. Um, I mean, you can literally pick his brain about anything, any topic, and he could probably just go off on it. I love that about him. Yeah. Specifically, getting to talk to him about the brothers Karamazov. <laughs> I knew you would. <laughs> oh my gosh! And you know what? That is going to be our claim to fame. Mm-hmm. That in addition to talking about deconstruction and reconstruction and. <laughs> you know, who is Jesus really? And what is Christianity really? And, you know, all that kind of stuff in his new book, we are the podcast. Yeah. That went Dostoevsky on everybody's. You've had two shining moments. I'll have you know. Really? Dostoevsky with uh, Brian Zond. Yeah. And you pulled out what is justice via Jacques Derrida with Dean Strang. That was fun. <laughs> yeah. That was a good time. Two, two moments where you're like, I'm going to take a calculated risk here. It was a calculated risk. And just perked up. Oh, oh they open, were, open new worlds. <laughs> yeah, they're open both like new worlds. Oh, oh, you, you want to talk there? about that? Oh, you want to go there? Okay. Oh, let's 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 do Foucault then. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, whoa. Oh, 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 okay. Oh my goodness. Oh, you, you there? Oh, I'm here. I'm just looking at. <laughs> sorry, sorry. <laughs> John, <laughs> Wait, why did John turn around? No, I was just looking. I, I've realized that I've done a really terrible job. At, at actually like giving the titles of the the artists oh the the bands who so, have yeah who are we listening to right now this week the band is anchor and braille who i've been a fan of for a long time the lead singer you guys probably know if you're fans of Anne berlin uh so uh christian is the name uh the lead singer of of uh Anne berlin and he's been working on the side project called i guess it's his full-time project now because Anne berlin is no longer together as a band uh, but uh, um, called Anchor and Braille, and he just recently put out a solo project under his own name. Great name of uh, worship music. But um, since we don't really do worship music much, yeah, on the podcast, um, we went with the Anchor and Braille route. Yep. So, um, but anyway, it's it's awesome stuff. Like very cool. Um, I've always I've always just enjoyed their music and his voice and all that good stuff. So anyway, I'm I'm doing a much better job now of giving shout outs to the bands who are nice enough to give us permission to use their music. Absolutely. So Anchor and Braille this week and um what else was I going to say? You know, I ran into somebody recently. Um I was I was walking out of a coffee shop and a friend was walking in with a friend who was in from out of town from Seattle, I think. And the friend that I ran into, that's a good friend of mine, was like, hey, here he is. Here's the podcaster himself. 
And I was like, oh, somebody's listening to our podcast. <laughs> <laughs> and, and this really nice woman who I don't know very well, a uh, friend of a friend, was like, yeah, I lo- love your podcast. Just listen to this episode and this episode and love this and blah, blah, blah. And we talked a little bit and like, you know, she's like, I just don't know where I'm at, you know, blah, blah, blah. And uh, love that Rob Bell changed your name. And, uh, and <laughs> which we never actually, and then she was like, it. but my favorite part of the podcast is all of the great bands that I get introduced to. Oh, no She's way. like, I have a list. She's like that I make just by listening to your podcast. What? I forgot to tell you this. That's so cool. And she's like, I just love that. I know every time I listen to an episode, I'm going to hear a band that I probably haven't heard of before. You know, that's my favorite thing about doing this podcast is so like, so Adam, for those of you that don't know, Adam, like, when we started out, Adam was the editing guru. So Adam did all the editing is like an editing master. And so like when Adam's job picked up and got really busy, I was like, crap, I need to, I need to pick up the, the slack here. I need to earn my keep. You did so. And then some, so, so I, uh, so I learned to edit very quickly. And so like, I've like, I always used to just like send Adam the music with like the music cues and stuff. I'm like, yeah, here's, here's this week's band. And I, I would send you the files yeah. and everything. Oh yeah. I remember. So like so now though I get to surprise you. Yes. Which is like the most fun part for me is it's like so much fun. Finding like new artists and bands and stuff. And then I'm like, oh, I like I know now, I have it down to a science. I'm like, all right, Adam will like this band. But then there are weeks where I'm like, Adam's gonna love this band. <laughs> Cause like I kind of know your vibe now. Oh, I know yeah. your style. So I'm I like, like sad music. Yes, you do. I love sad music. Sad folksy kind of stuff. Sad or like the the like uh like instrumental, like Yeah. Oh my gosh, like Max Richter, dude, yeah. destroys me. Max Richter. That's um, why I knew you'd like um, Arnold. Uh, Manchester uh, Orchestra's new album. Arnold's. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh my gosh. Oh man. Manchester United, though, is so dope. And that show was amazing. Oh my God. Back to Brian Zahn. Yes, 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 yes. So let me tell you a couple things that I just hope that our listeners are thinking about. Yes. I, you know, I don't want to make up anyone's mind for them. But some of the biggest reasons that I see people go through a crisis of faith is what do I do with hell? What do I do with atonement? Yep. What do I do with uh, the violence in the Bible? Yep. I mean, if you want to talk about a short list of reasons people reject Christianity before they ever get started. Yep. Or eventually go to school or start asking questions and they come to a place where they're like, I can't do this anymore if this is all part of the package. Sure. I am so thankful for guys like Brian Zond, who, by the way, is not trying to make Christian history or even scriptures say anything that they don't already leave themselves open to saying. Yeah. In addition to the fact of communicating this kind of stuff in an accessible, humble, albeit convicted, passionate kind of way. Yeah. And so I, I'll be honest. I'm a big Brian Zond fan. I'm with you. I'm I'm a Zond head. I'm (laughs) loving this dude. Yeah. And, and I had, he was not even on my radar before. And now, and now I just enjoy his perspective. Um, I'll be, I'll be honest just for where I'm at in, in my kind of journey. I don't really like listening to sermons anymore. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? Like you just, you hear a, too many sermons that just feel like propaganda and they feel like hype. Yeah. And they feel like, you know, just think we're cool and think we're awesome and, you know, all this kind of stuff and your life's going to be amazing and, you know, or, you know, just you have to believe this or else. I just, oh, I needed a palate cleanser, right, for a while. So, you know, I just listened to other stuff. But 
I also don't want to form a new echo chamber. Right. So I need guys like Zond. Yep. Because it's so good to remember that there's so many things I never wanted to throw out. Right. There's so many things that I never had a problem with. And even more than that, I resonated deeply with. Yeah. So I'm thankful for him in a big, big way. And I'm so glad that he loves the Brothers Karamazov by Fyodor Dostoevsky <laughs> as much as I do. Oh, man. Well, everybody needs to go out and get the book. Again, it's called Sinners in the Hands of a Loving God, The Scandalous Truth of the Very Good News Yep, by Brian Zond. It's an awesome book. It's a quick read. Really well done. Um, go check it out. Um, as always, um, thanks to the, uh, the musical guests this week. Um, if you guys want to follow along and, and if, if you don't want to have to like keep that list going or whatever, you can just follow us on Spotify. We have a playlist on there that um, I update weekly with a track by whoever the band is or artists that we're using. They're amazing. You can follow us on there. It's fun. Um, and uh, if you want to follow us on Patreon and get a part of that book club, uh, www.thedeconstructionist.com is where you can find us, connect to social media, uh, figure out you know what we're up to, um, and read our blog. And most recently, well, I don't know, by the time this comes out. Yeah, Zach Hogue. Zach Hogue, yeah. Yeah, he'll still, uh, the Hogue spirit. Yeah, he'll still be on there. For all freaking, you freaking love Zach Hogue. For all you Hogamaniacs out there. Yep. Check out our episode with Zach. Check out his uh, his book, The Light is Winning. It's awesome. Um, so much going on, guys. We love you. We could keep talking forever, but uh, we try to limit this podcast to not be just ramblings. <laughs> Which we've already If you want to hear us ramble, come to one of our live events next year and have a beer with us. Yes. We love you guys. Um, you know, God, God bless uh, all of you on your spiritual journeys, wherever you're at. Coming into the holiday season here, some of this stuff can get a little bit tricky. And um, if you need to talk, if you need to, you know, connect, reach out to us. Uh, we love every single part of this and every one of you listeners. So um, thanks for being here with us. And for now, we are your hosts. I'm Adam Narlock. And I'm John Williamson. Until next time, everybody. Oh